Just Another Bite, and I am JT O'Connell. Welcome back to my metal clearinghouse. Before I get started on the second half of the Cultural Revolution, and I am going to finish this piece of the Cultural Revolution uh, from the Black Book of Communism today, um, I'm going to try to additionally add some uh, direct comparisons to how it's how the similar patterns are playing out within our society right now within Western civilization at large, because when you get down to it, human beings culturally, though there are differences, uh, there's a lot of consistency in terms of how human beings operate within social patterns and uh, attempted social changes. So it's very important to pay attention to uh, drastic action of the past and try to see if uh, you can head off any catastrophic movements as they come around the corner. But before we get into that, I would like to talk for a moment about something that I heard on a podcast. I've seen it in other places. I've seen it written in a number of places. Uh, and this would be the notion that the cancel culture phenomenon we're experiencing right now, the current form of cancel culture, is simply a reflection of the lack of political power that certain groups have in order to uh, so they have to actually engage in these ways of calling for people to lose their jobs, to lose their family, to lose their uh, livelihood, their life, their their uh, place within society, um, to be ostracized simply because there have not been other uh, options to political power, to uh, concerns that these people groups have. I think that's just completely wrong. Uh, in several key ways. First of, first of all, if your political movement is capable of getting people fired in basically every arena of industry, so now we're talking not just on college campuses and professors uh, like Brett Weinstein, but uh, people in the tech industry, people who have started businesses of their own, actors, uh, politicians, of course, uh, musicians, hosts on television shows, people who uh, are members of library groups, people who have uh, very little power, but, you know, are, have been targeted nevertheless. Like, if your group, if your, if your organization is capable of terrorizing people into shutting up or kowtowing or actually losing their jobs and being ostracized from their uh, entire people group. It's not clear to me how your organization is powerless. It's not clear to me that you guys are actually on the outside. It sounds to me like you are attempting to consolidate the power that you have within the existing society, within the, the social organization. This is what I was saying a little bit ago, I think on the last podcast, that uh, it does not seem to me that the, the cancel culture phenomenon is a phenomenon of uh, people on the outside trying to uh, trying to gain a, a route to the inside. It's people who are already on the inside consolidating their power and excluding people, uh, other people, from being rivals to that power base. So we could go into the Cultural Revolution, uh, the remainder of it. I have had the notes here for a while, but I've been dealing with some pretty bad hay fever. You can probably hear it in my voice. I'm pretty stuffed up. Uh, I don't know if the colds that I've had have been allergy based, but 
knowing allergies as I do, this is definitely allergy based. And, you know, yesterday, and the day before I could, my face was just so itchy. There was no way I could do a podcast. So here we are. We'll try to catch up. We'll try to get through this. And I will try to draw some direct comparisons to a handful of things that have been going on within our existing society. I will say in the previous episode, I did not want to get too deeply into the violent characteristics of the cultural revolution. I think we on the right tend to focus an awful lot on the violent characteristics of radical movements of the past, be it uh, communism, uh, fascism, uh, you know, various types of anarchism. We tend to focus on the violence, and the violence is worthwhile to note because if a if an ideological structure is capable of driving people into, say, the Holocaust, then there's something deeply pernicious about that that structure, and you have to find out about how that structure took advantage of people in where they were at. How did it bring out the worst characteristics of people? How did it suppress the best characteristics of people? Because what you want to do is you want to build a society that brings out the best characteristics of people and suppresses the worst characteristics of people. And of course, fascism and Nazi Germany is a very easy uh, example because the Germans held uh, fastidious records uh, of everything that they were doing. Uh, some of the records were destroyed, but there's really good documentation for that horrific uh, event, not just the uh, repression and the genocide against the Jews, but uh, repression and, and uh, uh, murder of lots of people groups. The Jews were a particular uh, target that is definitely noteworthy and unique in that respect, but uh, the, the Nazis went after other groups as well, and uh, it's worth looking into how those, those things operated. But communism as well, we tend to focus on all the millions killed by communism because it is important. It's very important. But communism is broken and wrong apart from the bloodshed. So that is to say that it it turns people not just into people who would be willing to engage in violent action on behalf of an ideology, it turns people into worst the worst version of themselves. So you, you might notice, if you pay attention to anything, uh, that China has been doing this uh, anti-corruption campaign for like decades. And they keep finding people in the Chinese Communist Party who have been rife with corruption. There was one guy who had, I think it was three metric tons of cash stored away somewhere. And he had a, a hundred mistresses that he, basically he had a harem. He basically had bought women. Uh, some of them, I think from South Korea, uh, from North Korea, not South Korea. Uh, Cause yes, you could buy women in China. Sex slavery is a, it's, you know, right on the cusp of being like a legitimate practice in China. Um, there was another woman recently who came out like she had, uh, you know, just tons and tons, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of uh, things that she had basically um, paid for by uh, stealing money from this bank, the Jiangsu Bank in China. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about it. Uh, China Uncensored covers a lot of these things. You guys should check that out if you haven't paid attention to any of China Uncensored's videos on YouTube. Um, the thing of it is they're always doing these anti-corruption campaigns and they're always able to get rid of people because they find corruption. They find corruption in uh, people who are to one degree or another on the wrong side of the faction conflict within the, the Chinese Communist Party itself. So you would think that like they would go after people who are threats to the Chinese Communist Party. Yes. But these are people who are part of the Chinese Communist Party who are threats to the faction that's in power. So Xi Jinping's faction. Uh, Xi Jinping's faction is, uh, is 
there's several other rival factions. One of them is Jiang Zemin's faction. And uh, so anybody who is like attached to Jiang Zemin, uh, they have to be taken out by Xi Jinping. So we have these corruption campaigns that just always happen to take out the right people. But why is it that you are actually finding people who are legitimately corrupt? Because everybody's corrupt. Communism is structurally designed, like in its fundamental basis, it is designed to build up people's corruption. This is part of why Marx was just flat out wrong about communism, because you're not better off if you're an honest person in communism. Communism promotes the worst characteristics of mankind, duplicitousness. Uh, uh, you know, in the Orwellian phrasing, we call this uh, double think. So like you're supposed to keep two thoughts in mind simultaneously that uh, are not, that, that cannot be held together. Like they conflict with each other. So the way that that works for somebody who's honest is it makes you confused and it suppresses your tendency to uh, try to uh, to try to make sense of the world. You just you end up just taking orders. So double think is like, oh, OK, well, um, slavery is freedom. War is peace. Uh, the, the powerful state is uh, your personal liberty. It's all of these contradictions. And so an honest person ends up who is trying to do what they are told to do ends up just having to follow orders. Just don't think about it. Just follow orders. But meanwhile, the people on top can have all these contradictory things. They can be corrupt. They can be malicious. They can be malevolent. They can actually uh, stand for themselves so that they gain at the expense of the state, at the expense of the people. But uh, but that's not a problem because they programmed into everything this double thing, this, uh, this, this fact that, well, if I get my way, if I can get this little extra power, if Xi Jinping can consolidate power just a little bit more, then China will be better off and the Chinese people will be living in a better socialist paradise. Uh, and it's a very confusing mess in China, particularly because with uh, Deng Xiaoping, they opened up a lot of market reforms and have allowed uh, uh, a fair bit of, uh, of free enterprise within uh, a confusing bureaucratic structure, but a lot of that free enterprise means you have to buy off the party apparatchiks. You have to be making sure that the proper people are on the take and you, you have to be, you know, greasing palms here and there. It's not like in the United States where if you start a business for the most part, you can run your business and just succeed in the marketplace or fail as customers say. But, you know, even in the United States, you have to grease palms here and there. It's a lot easier to get a liquor license if you grease some palms. It just is. It's a lot easier to uh, start a, a, a lending and loan place if you know the right people. It just is. Uh, and it's not clear that we'll ever have societies that are able to, de to, to eliminate these forms of nepotism completely. But with China, it's that is what it is. The entire thing, top to bottom, it's one big grift. And the bigger the grifter, uh, then the more likely he is to succeed and move his way up the Chinese Communist Party party ladder, which is also why people who are socialists will say, well, this isn't socialism. Okay. Yeah. It's not socialism in the sense that, uh, everybody is literally just playing perfectly fair and, uh, running it themselves by the, the traditional communitarian rules. I say communitarian as opposed to communism, communitarian, like if we started a commune and we had like, you know, 45 people in the commune and everybody works and everybody gets an equal share, you can manage that. 
you know, to an extent, 45 people, you can manage that because everybody can keep track of everybody else and see who is not pulling their weight. And then you can, you can allocate social pressure on that person to either pull their weight or get the heck out of the commune. Uh, these were tried in the past. There are a number of interesting experiments that were tried in the United States. Maybe I'll go into those at some point. The late 1800s, early 1900s, there were a bunch of these that were tried. Uh, Ruskin, Tennessee is one that comes to mind. My father had told me about that, and I checked it out. And it's, you know, interesting case study for this sort of thing. But once you get to a society of a million people, you can't do this. There's no way. You know, 100,000 people. You can't do it. No possible way to do it. And China's got what, like 1.2, 1.3 billion people? Uh, okay, so what that means is if you can't, uh, if, if a society cannot self-police in order to root out corruption because of its scale, but its organization means that people who are corrupt will do better, then you're going to have maximal corruption on the top levels. So you have the anti-corruption campaigns and all of this stuff. Uh, anyway. We can go back into the Cultural Revolution because largely what was going on, what I covered on the last episode was that uh, Mao was ill for about two years and couldn't consolidate power fully. He still hadn't completely consolidated power. He had uh, Some of his power had been leeching away as he was, as he was ill, and uh, so he began to take advantage of these small uprisings. So you had small uprisings break out, people on the lower levels who had been taught young people who had been taught communist uh, propaganda their entire life, Mao's Little Red Book, they took it seriously and they began to uh, rise up and uh, attack in more ways than one, attack the existing society because they felt, and they were right to an extent, that the existing society was not living up to Mao's teachings uh, properly. And so you had... You know, historians who were uh, aging, intellectuals who were aging, philosophers, uh, Chinese professors, uh, engineers, things like that, who had not necessarily been purged yet by the uh, communist revolution, but who were noted as being to one degree or another anti-communist, which is not to say, or anti-revolutionary was the term they were using, but basically anti-communist, which is not to say these people were anti-communist. Uh, it's to say that the revolution continually has to eat more and more people. I think I covered this. I think I talked about this, how the revolution always has to find new targets because it always has, like, that's the churn. It, it needs, like, whoever takes power will not usher in the, the final utopia, and therefore those people have to be destroyed next. Those people have to be taken out next. If our philosophy is that the people with power are somehow standing in the way of the right order, the right society, then the moment a new person steps into that power vacuum, then that person becomes the target for the next thing. And Mao was uh, Mao and a lot of the, the Chinese Communist Party were very... Uh, very perceptive in being able to utilize these lower level groups to take out the mid-level areas uh, of, of the society, which A, stood in the way of their consolidation of power, but B, were potential rivals uh, to, a, to a degree as well. So Mao was trying to consolidate power and he was able to encourage uh, and suppress sometimes, but encourage for the most part, these small cadres of people that rose up and were oppressing people. Now, I did not, as I said earlier, 
I did not try to cover the violence too much. I am going to cover a little bit more of the violence in here, but I'm not going to talk a huge about, about the violence because I don't think that that's necessarily the best lesson for us to take. If you want to say that, well, it's because of the violence that the Cultural Revolution was bad, you could say that uh, the violence certainly was a bad aspect of the Cultural Revolution, but it was bad besides, and we could learn lessons from the things that were not violent in the Cultural Revolution because that's much more akin to what we are experiencing in our society, in the West, and in the United States in particular right now. So, let's just jump into this, and hopefully I can knock this out without boring everyone too much. Alright, having for the most part already been through self, several self-criticisms, self-criticism was the idea of, uh, you know, on every day for a certain period, uh, everybody sits down and you know, I think it's like once a month you have to be the target of the self-criticism session. So you do several people. They confess to how they're uh, insufficiently socialist, insufficiently helping the revolution. Uh, and then everybody has to yell and scream at them and harass them for being uh, insufficiently woke. And you had uh, within these self-criticism sessions, you had like other people would like call out when they thought you were guilty of something as well. So it wasn't just you saying, well, this is what I'm guilty of. And everybody, you know, pretends to yell at you. It's, you know, other people were like, this still goes on in North Korea right now. It still goes on in China to an extent right now, but uh, you have basically creating a society of tattletales and nobody can trust anybody because everybody knows the moment they step out of line for one thing or another, then they're going to be called out in one of these sessions and then it's going to be exposed before everyone and they might lose their job over it. And in the cultural revolution, you might lose even more than your job. You might lose your life. Uh, so here we go. Having for the most part already been through several self-criticisms, the intellectuals had little will to resist. Older writers, often wearing ridiculous outfits that they were forced to wear, were paraded through the streets for hours until they dropped from exhaustion while, other, while the young hurled insults and blows. A number of them died that way. Others killed themselves, including the great Lao Tzu in August and Fu Lei, the translator of Balzac and Mallarmé in September. Deng Do was killed. Wuhan, not the place, but the person. Zhao Shuli and Liu Qing died in prison, and Pa Qin spent years under house arrest. Ding Ling had ten years' work confiscated and destroyed. The, sad the sadism and fanaticism of these rebellious killers was overwhelming. At the University of Xiamen, Fujian, some teacher, this is now a quote, some teachers could no longer stand the constant attacks and criticism and fell ill and died more or less in our presence. I felt no pity for them, no more than I did for the handful who killed themselves by throwing themselves out of windows or for the one who threw himself into our hot spring and boiled to death, unquote. About one in ten of all teachers were removed and many more suffered serious intimidation. So this is just an attempt to coalesce these small groups of people into a force that demands that the anti-revolutionary groups change. You have to change. You have to come in line with the revolution and everything that we think you're wrong about, you will have to be stopped for. And there was just, you notice there's no pity for this. Um, and, you know, I think we've seen in the past, in the recent years, uh, a lot of people, there's been a lot of uh, tweets that have come to light of people saying, well, I don't care if this person's not guilty of this. This person's the wrong sort of person and therefore has to be harassed so that the people who are guilty of this, you know, will 
will be afraid and will uh, change their ways. We see numerous examples of these sorts of things, not not the least of which is actually on college campuses, speakers, people being harassed for uh, being part of the wrong organization, uh, professors who are like the the one random fish uh, out of water that is uh, you know somewhat to the right. Uh, being hounded and having their their uh, tenure challenged and being criticized or being denied tenure or being denied uh, uh, travel fees as part of a uh, their uh, sabbatical as God said recently uh, covered anyway let's move on cities waited for the arrival of the red guards in the way that one waits for a storm to hit particularly during the campaign against the four old-fashioned things old ideas, old culture, old customs, and old habits, which was launched by Lin Biao on the 18th of August. So you notice all of those things there, old ideas, old culture, old customs, and old habits. None of those are particularly bad things, but of course, these are also the things that are being challenged now. Old culture, Dr. Seuss, Shakespeare, Homer, old ideas, uh, the free market, limited government, checks and balances, the Electoral College, old customs, uh, the idea of men and women. Uh, th- this is my translation of this to our circumstance here. This is not my diagnosis of China. This They were doing this in a different way. Old customs, the idea that men and women are distinct categories and you can't transition from one to the other no matter how much you feel like you should or you want to and no matter how much uh, plastic surgery you put into yourself. Uh, and that there are differences in how we uh, how we think and how we behave and that there are specific things that should be asked of people in these different categories, uh, not requiring of people to be uh, traditional in all of their, their uh, life choices, but that you should at least give consideration to doing the thing that produced your generation in the first place have a family with a person and stick with that family and try to make it work and try to raise your kids. Old habits. Let's move on to old habits. Old habits would be like uh, enjoying, uh, you know, enjoying yourself uh, by taking a vacation or whatever, or uh, enjoying going out with your friends to uh, have a drink or going bowling or, uh, you know, going for a drive, whatever it might be. All of these things are being challenged by the existing intelligentsia uh, within our society, and not just the intelligentsia, but the, the young radical youth movements, the, the, the DSA, the Antifa, uh, Black Lives Matter. In fact, Black Lives Matter explicitly on their website for the longest time, it may not be there anymore, but for the longest time, it was basically challenging these sorts of ideas, old ideas, old culture, old customs, old habits, uh, it's it's remarkable how congruent uh, the 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 radical left wing movements have been across time and across cultures. Anyway, let's move on. Temples were barricaded, although a great number were badly damaged or destroyed. All the same, often in public autos de fe, treasures were hidden, frescoes were whitewashed for protection. Uh, that just that bothers me so much. I don't know if you could take paint off of frescoes without damaging the frescoes, but that, that frustrates me. And books were hidden. hidden. Um, 
All the sets and costumes at the Beijing Opera were burned to make way for the revolutionary operas with contemporary themes that were demanded by Mao's wife, and that for a decade were the only authorized form of cultural expression. Okay, so we this see we see this as well. All of the um, all of the big ticket movies and things like that uh, and TV shows now have to contain a certain number of transgender people and a certain number of uh, of people of color. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with writing characters who do reflect uh, who do reflect the weird quirkiness of mankind because there's an awful lot of interest to be had in having characters who are unique and interesting. But the requirement of it, the, the, the demands that are pressed upon our, uh, our writers. And also you notice, like, I don't know uh, of listeners, how much you're aware, but writers are now being, it being demanded of writers that they write no characters who are not exactly like themselves. So if you're a white male, you can only write white male characters because you can't get in the mind of a woman. You can't get in the mind of a black man. You can't get in the mind of a Mexican immigrant. And it's like, okay, but that's, to, I mean, I understand what you're saying to an extent, but that's so exclusive that that creates such barriers between us that we might as well not have anything to do with each other. That is segregation, right? So while we're not trying to put up actual barriers and say this is the white part of town, this is the black part of town, this is the Latin part of town, or I'm sorry, the Latinx part of town. God, I hate that so much. Uh, while we're not doing that yet, we are establishing the psychological parameters within which segregation is the only obvious result. And I'm against that. I'm against, and I believe everybody who's listening to this is probably against that. Now, if anyone's listening to this and say, well, that's not what's going on. They just don't want you to caricature uh, a transgender person. They don't want you to caricature a black person. It's like, okay, I understand that. And sometimes you have some tone deaf people, but maybe a little bit of, sensitivity not just for the person who is who who feels offended that uh their racial characteristics or their gender characteristics were not portrayed in the way that they experience it maybe a little bit of uh of uh, uh generosity to the person who's like this is the best i've got uh and if it was not like because that you can tell you can generally tell if somebody's trying to be malicious I can tell when I read Mark Twain that he was not trying to be malicious when he used the N-word in those books. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, I can tell when I read Dr. Seuss that uh, Horton Hears a Who was not trying to other people. I can tell that. It's the, the that's, that's why I know these are power games. That's why I know that this is not... Because somebody who is genuinely trying to make the world a better place is going to have a spirit of generosity to an extent. And they will only pull that trigger on saying this is an awful thing when it is undeniably malicious in its intent or when it's, when its effect is so overwhelmingly negative that the intent almost doesn't matter. But who reads Horton Hears a, th a Who and suddenly says, well, you know what? Now that I think about it, I'm going to become a white supremacist. The lack of generosity and grace on the, the uh, part of these, these organizations is so ridiculous. All right, let's jump back in. The Great Wall itself was partially destroyed as bricks were removed from it to build pigsties. Zhao had the Imperial Palace in Beijing partially walled up and protected by his troops. 
Various religious groups were affected. The monks were expelled, expelled from the famous Buddhist monastery on Wutai Mountain. Its ancient manuscripts were burned, and several of its 60 temples were partially destroyed. The Korans of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang were buried. Incidentally, that is a that is a repression and now genocide that has been going on since the 60s. So this is a 60-year-old repression and genocide uh, that is still going on to this day. I don't even, I have no idea how we can justify having anything to do with China as an economy here, but apparently we're going to continue to do that. Finish the sentence out. And celebrations of the Chinese New Year were banned. Xenophobia, which had a long history in China, was taken to an extreme. Quote, imperialist, unquote, tombs in some century cemeteries were lo looted. All Christian practices were more or less banned, and all English or French inscriptions on the Bund in Shanghai were chiseled away. Nian Cheng, who was the widow of an Englishman and who had offered a red guard a cup of coffee while he was on requisition duty, found herself being asked, Why do you have to drink a foreign beverage? Why do you have to eat a foreign food? Why do you have so many foreign books? Why are you so foreign altogether? Unquote. The Red Guards, who took themselves extremely seriously, thought it was a good idea to ban, quote, wastes of revolutionary energy, unquote, such as cats, birds, and flowers. Incidentally, Mao himself, uh, James Lindsay told the story. I looked into it. Yeah, this, this is real. Mao himself had decided that there were only like six birds that were actually Chinese. And so... Uh, he would, he had this decree. I don't remember if it was a decree. I don't know. I don't know what it was, but basically everybody got it in their head that the way to be a good revolutionary was to go out and kill all these birds that were not these particular Chinese birds because they were infecting the, the, uh, the social organization in China. So they killed all these birds, but all these birds were like eating insects. So the insects exploded in population and ate up all of the, the grain, and there was another mass starvation in China. This is, this is how millions, millions of people die. Anyway, let's go on. The prime minister himself was forced to intervene to prevent legislation that would have made a red traffic light mean go. In big cities such as Shanghai, teams shaved the head of anyone caught in the streets with long or lacquered hair, tore up trousers that were too tight, ripped high heels off shoes, slid open point, pointed toe shoes, and forced shops to change their names. The presence of hundreds of shops called East is Red, all filled with identical portraits of the leader, caused the inhabitants to lose their bearings. Anyone who failed to comply received a picture of Mao that it was considered a sacrilege to destroy. Red guards stopped passersby and forced them to recite their favorite quotation from Mao. Many people were afraid to leave their houses. So that's pretty extreme, and I don't think we're quite there yet, but one would be... Uh, one would be forgiven for saying, well, wait a minute, you know, every time there's uh, there's a, a set of violent, or there's a set of protests and people go violently rioting and looting in the streets, you've got all these businesses that are putting up signs saying black-owned business, BLM, Black Lives Matter, as, uh, uh, you know, the, the greengrocer argument from Vaclav Havel, please don't attack me because I'm part of you. I'm just trying to run my small business and I'm part of, but I'm, I support the good cause, but destroy all those other businesses that don't support, don't support the good cause. So it's like, it's a type of, uh, it's a type of compliance terrorism. Comply or you lose, uh, something valuable to you. Uh, and you get people to line up behind your organization this way. And this is exactly what BLM and Antifa have been doing. 
Moving on, is it, a, it is astonishing how easy it was for these young Red Guards who in 1966 and 1967 had relatively few allies in the other strata of society to attack and criticize party leaders in the stadiums of Beijing or even to torture them to death, as was the case for party leader in Tianjin and the mayor of Shanghai. The latter was attached to a crane of a streetcar breakdown truck. So this is a truck that goes and picks up and carries away streetcars that are broken down and severely beaten while announcing that he would rather die than confess to anything. The only possible explanation was that Chairman Mao, which meant the state apparatus, supported the, quote, revolutionaries, unquote, with decisions like the one on the 26th of July, 1966, subsequently revoked to close all secondary schools and higher education establishments for six months to mobilize what was, in effect, a force of 50 million school children, with nothing to do and free to do whatever they liked, even killing, Deaths were later described as accidents and endlessly egged on by the official media. What could have stood in the way of these school children? Okay, so what's going on here is very similar to what we experienced in this past year. We had the schools shut down by the pandemic. An enormous amount of uh, young people kept home from college and high school who were forced to stay in their houses because of the pandemic some of them violated that rule, but for the most part, people were staying basically to themselves uh, because, for the most part, places weren't open. You couldn't go anyplace. And then the George Floyd protest happened, and then you had all these people, millions of people, take to the streets for protest and everything from protest all the way up to murder, including arson, looting, rampaging, turning over cars, assaulting police officers, assaulting random people. And that's basically the same thing that happened in China. Now, it was a lot more people, and it was a lot more cities, uh, and there were a lot more killings, but it's roughly the same pattern. Moving on. One of their first pogroms took place in one of the top secondary schools in Xiamen. At 12 o'clock, this is now a quote, at 12 o'clock, as a few of us were on our way back from a swim in the sea, we heard screams and shouts as we approached the school gate. Some schoolmates ran up to us shouting, the struggle has begun. The struggle has begun. I ran inside. On the athletic field and farther inside, before a new four-story classroom building, I saw rows of teachers, about 40 or 50 in all, with black ink poured over their heads and faces, so that they were now, in reality, a, quote, black gang, unquote. So that's a reference to, uh, basically, wreckers, like people who are anti-revolutionary. Hanging on their necks were placards with words such as, quote, reactionary academic authority and so-and-so. Uh, corrupt ringleader, so-and-so, class enemy, so-and-so, capitalist rotor, so-and-so, all epithets taken from the newspapers. On each placard was a red cross, making the teachers look like condemned prisoners awaiting execution. They all wore dunce caps painted with similar epithets and carried dirty brooms, shoes, and dusters on their backs. Hanging from their necks were pails filled with rocks. I saw the principal. The pail around his neck's neck was so heavy that the barbed wire had cut deep into his neck and he was staggering. All were barefoot hitting broken gongs or pots as they walked around the field, crying out, I am black gangster so-and-so. Finally, they all knelt down, burned incense, and begged Mao Zedong to pardon their crimes. I was stunned by this scene, and I felt my face go pale. A few girls nearly fainted. Beatings and torture followed. I had never seen such tortures before. Eating night soil and insects, being subjected to electric shocks, being forced to kneel on broken glass, being hanged, quote, like an airplane, unquote, by the arms and legs. 
Those who immediately took up the sticks and applied the tortures were the school bullies, who, as children of party cadres and army officers, belonged to the five red categories, a group that also included the children of workers, poor and lower middle class peasants, uh, and revolutionary martyrs. Coarse and cruel, they were accustomed to throwing around their parents' status and brawling with the other students. They did so poorly in schools that they were about to be expelled and presumably, presumably resented their teachers because of this. So what's going on here? You've got these uh, organizations, these small grassroots organizations of people ganging up to uh, cause mayhem and uh, threaten the, uh, the middle tier, the lower to middle tier apparatuses of society uh, with the message of the top tier apparatus of society, the, the Mao Zedong class, basically. So you had party leaders and their children who are used to being bullies in school uh, because they know that they're protected members of the party, that they're, they're more revolutionary, they're more socialist, so they're better than you, and they can destroy your life if they want to, and it's not a problem. Uh, they can torture you. Uh, you're lower on the, the class totem pole. Uh, and these are the people who immediately rise to the top when you have these revolutionary movements happening. The reprehensible people who are willing to take violent action in defense of the revolution. Uh, those immediately rise to the top, which is why it's extremely rare to have a revolutionary uh, organization uh, or movement that comes about that leads to something better. Which is why, as I said in the previous episode, the United States Revolution is not actually a revolution. It was a reinstantiation of that which had come before in a purer form. It was not a revolution, meaning a replacement of all existing structures with new structures. Because the moment, like, in order to replace all existing structures with new structures, you have to be, uh, you are taking the risk that the worst people in society will see that as an opportunity, as inevitably happens. Let's go on. This is continuing the quote from this person. Greatly emboldened by the instigators, the other students cried, beat them, and jumped on the teachers, swinging their fists and kicking. The stragglers were forced to back them up with loud shouts and clenched fists. There was nothing strange in this. Young students were ordinarily peaceful and well-behaved, but once the first step was taken, all were bound to follow. There have been lots of discussions, incidentally, about how when you get a mass of people out in the streets and they're operating as a mass, they're not, like, people aren't thinking as individuals. What they're doing is they're gauging their activity based upon the, the movement itself. And so what you do is you have a movement like that and you have one or two people who are unhinged or say they're uh, deeply, uh, deeply malicious and they intend to start something. So they go out there and they go a little bit further and then they wait for the crowd to catch up. And then they go a little bit further, wait for the crowd to catch up. And then pretty soon you have this whole group organism, you know, this large structure of people who are now doing things that most of them in that group would not have considered doing on their own, you know, 15 minutes ago. Uh, so one person starts throwing things and then a handful of people start throwing things and then pretty, pretty soon everyone's throwing things or everyone's breaking into the target or everyone is setting fires or everyone is turning over the cars or everyone is finding somebody to mob and beat. But if any one of those people, there might have been only a handful of people in that entire group who had the, the courage to go out there and throw a Molotov cocktail on their own or to go out there and start swinging a bat at somebody on their own, or to go out there and to break into a Walgreens on their own. Um, 
it's 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 not it's just sort of how human beings work and so you get people in these large groups you gin them up emotionally you have them uh engaging in a mass phenomenon like this and you they get they get dopamine hits out of actually following uh, following along with the group and elevating themselves to those next levels and this is this is how uh uh you know people were brought to doing things that are truly reprehensible like beating teachers to death like uh, putting women and children inside gas chambers. That's how this happens. This is, that is the conversion of people uh, from being something of the middle of where they are to being their worst self. Uh, that's at least part of it. That's one way. And that's part of why a lot of us have always been opposed to a lot of these uh, mass rallies that, that get out of hand. Uh, all right. Continue with the quote. It's almost done. The heaviest blow to me that day was the killing of my most respected and beloved teacher, Chun, Chun Kute. I, I don't know how to pronounce it. Teacher Chun, over 60 years old and suffering from high blood pressure, was dragged out at 1130, exposed to the summer sun for more than two hours, and then paraded around with the others carrying a placard and hitting a gong. Then he was dragged up to the second floor of a classroom building and down again, beaten with fists and broomsticks all along the way. On the second floor, some of his attackers ran into a classroom to get bamboo carrying poles with which to beat him further. I stopped them, pleading, you don't have to do this. This is too much. He passed out several times, but was brought back to consciousness, each time with cold water splashed out of his face. He could hardly move his body. His feet were cut by glass and thorns, but his spirit was unbroken. He shouted, why don't you kill me? Kill me. This lasted for six hours until he lost control of his excrement. They for then forced a stick into his rectum. He collapsed for the last time. They poured cold water on him again. It was too late. The killers were stunned momentarily, as it was probably the first time that they had ever beaten a man to death, and it was the first time most of us had ever witnessed such a scene. People began to run away, one after another. They dragged him off the field to a wooden shack where the teachers used to play ping pong. There they put him on a dirty gym mat and, surround and summoned the school doctor. Check carefully whether he died of high blood pressure. This is a quote. You are not allowed to defend him. The doctor examined him and pronounced him dead of torture. Some of those present seized the doctor and began to beat him up too. Why are you breathing air from the same nostrils as his? Do you want to be like him? Finally, the doctor wrote on the death certificate, death due to a sudden attack of high blood pressure. So that finishes the quote. Moving on to the book, the, the boundless energy of these tens of millions of people was almost purely destructive. During the brief periods when they did hold positions of power, they achieved absolutely nothing and failed to modify the totalitarian structure that was in place in any significant way. So this goes back to what I was saying before. You have these organizations that are banded together in many respects to destroy the existing structures, but they don't actually have anything they can replace it with. Uh, we see that right now. So you will have all these people whose sole focus is the tearing down of the United States, the revamping of the United States history into the 1619 project, that it's been nothing but racial oppression since uh, the continent the was settled by Westerners, and that nothing has changed in that period of time. From the ideological point of view, even radical groups that were concerned with the elaboration of new theories, such as the Shangwulin group in Hunan, were able to break from the extremely limited Maoist frame of reference. Mao's thinking was always so vague and his words so contradictory that they could be turned to mean almost anything. Both conservatives and rebels had their stock quotations, sometimes the same quotations interpreted differently. 
In the strange place that was China during the Cultural Revolution, a beggar could justify stealing by quoting Mao's words about mutual assistance, and a worker in the underground economy who had stolen bricks could reject all scruples for the, quote, the working class must exercise leadership in everything, unquote. But there was always one hard central idea, the sanctification of violence, the radical nature of class struggles and its political implications. For people who could follow the correct line, anything was permitted. Even the, re the rebels could not distance themselves from the official propaganda. Their texts closely imitated the official language of the party. They lied outrageously, not only to the masses, but also to their own comrades. So this is also reflective of what we've experienced in the United States. So people will talk about how they are oppressed. People will talk about how uh, there's oppression all over the place. And the moment that you point it out and say, you're not oppressed, this was an oppression that you're pointing out right here, they just move on. It doesn't matter whether or not it's actually representing oppression because everything is permitted in, uh, uh, in service to the cause. Everything is permitted in service to the party agenda to the revolutionary agenda. Now, here's another quote. So this was a, uh, I believe this was a song that was sung by a lot of these kids. Uh, if the father is brave, the son will be a hero. If he's a reactionary, the son will be an asshole. If, the, if you're a revolutionary, step forward and join us. If you're not, get lost. Get lost. We're going to chase you out of your fucking job. Kill, kill, kill. One well-born, well, excuse me, this is now not the song. One well-born person commented, we were born red. Our redness comes from the body of our mother. And I tell you quite clearly, you were born black or counter-revolutionary. What can you do about that? The racialization of categories was devastating. Zhai Zhenhua, belt in hand and insults at the ready, forced the, quote, black, unquote, half of his class to spend all their time studying Mao. Quote, if they are trying to save themselves, they must first learn to be ashamed of their horrible family origins and to hate their parents, unquote. That also sounds familiar. Kids go to college and then they come back and their parents don't recognize the person. This person now has, you know, very strange hair and is uh, quoting all sorts of uh, crazy things and is saying the worst possible things about our country and not just our country, but our family. Uh, you know, you and uh, dad are engaged in, uh, um, you know... Um, uh, like patriarchal oppression and uh, racism and, uh, you know, the whole structure of society is bad. And it's like, th 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 these are, this is nothing new. This is, this is very common. This is very normal. Uh, see, I see time's getting away from me. Let's move on. Uh, thus, in the case of a schoolgirl named Piggy, nicknamed Piggy, Ling recalls, Quote, Piggy's class background, a major qualification, was very good. She was from a Mason's family and often boasted that for three generations, her family had never had a roof over their heads, unquote. In any verbal confrontation, the class card was always well played, was always played and always won. Well, that's very similar here. So we're now taught that nothing is, nothing is subject to the facts, that the facts have to be contorted in order to match the uh, characteristics of the oppressed classes, uh, the oppressed identities of the people on either side of an equation. So you have somebody who uh, is robbing a store and we now have to ask, well, was the store owner white and was the robber black? And if the store owner was white and the robber was black, then maybe the guy was just, uh, you know, he, he wasn't, he, he was oppressed. And so he, his oppression led him to do this thing. So he didn't have a choice. 
And if the white store owner is not guilty in this circumstance, he certainly cannot hold the black person liable for that circumstance. Now, that might seem like an extreme example, but some of those, there have been cases like that. The Michael Brown case was basically that. So Michael Brown robs a liquor store, or not liquor store, robs a convenience store, steals stuff from him. He didn't rob him, but he steals stuff from him. And then when the store owner, who was, I think, Pakistani, confronted Michael Brown, Michael Brown pushed him pretty hard on video. Uh, That is assault. That is felonious assault. You can go to jail for that. So the store owner called the police and said what happened and that uh, Michael Brown was then confronted by a police officer whom he then subsequently assaulted, broke the guy's jaw, and then attempted to rush him again when the police officer, uh, heroically, in my estimation, was attempting to stop this person who was running rampant outside of the law and acting as though the law has no places no restraint upon his Uh, behavior whatsoever. And then Michael Brown was shot. But all we get to hear is that Michael Brown was the oppressed kid and that the police officer being a white guy was uh, somehow at fault here. It's like Michael Brown did everything wrong that day. Everything wrong. He got stoned with his friend after sleeping late, stole from a convenience store, assaulted a convenience store owner, assaulted a police officer, and then ran at a police officer again, intending to do him harm. But Michael Brown, being a black person, is uh, the one who is the victim. That's just how we operate. We still have people wearing hands-up-don't-shoot t-shirts, doing the hands-up-don't-shoot thing, when we know that was a lie. And Barack Obama's uh, Justice Department, Eric Holder, a black man who went to Ferguson to investigate that crime, specifically said that did not happen. But people are still believing this. So we're playing these class games. What we're doing here is we're playing with fire. Anyway, I have one more quote that I set aside specifically that I have a handful of paragraphs that I want to read, and hopefully I've laced in enough of this that you can kind of infer on your own some of the comparisons to Western civilization as of right now and make your own comparison. Basically, I'm trying to inform more people out there as to what went on in the Cultural Revolution so that they can actually have something to look at Uh, And you can research this. This is all from the Black Book of Communism. There's plenty of resources out there, but the Black Book of Communism is a great resource. Uh, So you can try to figure out how our society should be approached. What what should you actually do? How should you regard the activities of uh, people on various sides of these disputes that are going on in the United States right now? All right, here we go. As was the case in the Lao Guy Anyone who made accusations was always right, since the accusation came with a barrage of quotations and sacrosanct slogans. As a rule, those who tried to defend themselves always ended up in deep, even deeper trouble. The only effective riposte was a counter-accusation at a higher level. So if you get accused of being counter-revolutionary, or being a wrecker, or being somehow insufficiently socialist, the only way you can get out of that is to A, admit that you are insufficiently socialist, but then come up with a bigger accusation against somebody else. Uh, who is anti-socialist. So basically, the whole th- everything is in one direction. Everything's in one direction. This ratchet only turns in one direction. And that is the revolutionary direction, Mao's direction, basically. Uh, it mattered little whether the accusation had any basis. The important thing was that it be couched in correct political terms. Hmm. That sounds very familiar. Uh, you know, uh, the ideologies we have right now... Uh, intersectionality and all of these things it's just it's it's all 
a terminology which in itself, if you use the right terminology, then you are, if you use Latin X or Latinx, then you are uh, showing yourself to be a part of the radical cause. You are showing yourself to be a member of the movement, a, a member of the cult. The logic of the debate thus constantly expanded the, the battlefield and the number of targets. In the final analysis, since everything was political, the tiniest incident could be overinterpreted as proof of the worst criminal intentions. The outcome was arbitration through physical elimination. So that's all going on right now. So uh, as social justice expands its tentacles through society, then more accusations will be laid uh, on that, okay, this person is racist, this person is sexist, this person is homophobic, this person is xenophobic, this person is... Uh, uh, tr like anti-transgender, this person, you know, and so as you have more and more of those go out there, then you have more and more people who are seeing that to the, the degree that those succeed, then the way to get along is to be much more critical of anyone who is uh, uh, outside of the, the woke mainstream. So the way you can succeed within your organization, if your organization has to any degree embraced the woke culture is to advance the woke culture within that organization more vociferously, more loudly, more aggressively than anybody else. And what happens is you have more and more people who have to fall victim to that advancement uh, in order for these things to succeed. So if social justice, if intersectionality, if white, uh, white, um, I always, I always say white guilt because that's Shelby Steele's book. Um, if white fragility is to advance as a uh, as a conceptual structure within our corporations, within our uh, education systems, within our entertainment systems, within our media, within our government, then it it has to find more victims. And so that's why you see cancel culture just like amplifying out there like a virus. That's exactly what's going on right here. And the outcome was arbitration through physical elimination. So these are not people who are being murdered yet. These are people who are being cast out of their jobs in a lot of cases cast out of their familial relationships from their friend groups, from their peer structures, from their networks. And what we can hope is that as the woke social justice apocalypse proceeds, that it moves so quickly that it casts so many people out that basically it's just a handful of woke cadres who, yes, do hold significant uh, cultural and political power within the United States, but who have now exposed themselves to being an extreme minority because they have, uh, so many people have fallen prey and have been simply ostracized. Uh, in many respects, this is a disease that I kind of hope burns itself out through radical amplification uh, because its amplification is going to basically set aside people and inoculate them against falling into this as a conceptual structure. I would rather people wake up by being a victim to this stuff than wake up 10 years down the road having been a perpetrator of this stuff. Okay, so that's all of the quotes I had set aside, but let me read a handful of these paragraphs just to finish this out. How hard conditions really were during this period can be gauged from the following statement by a Red Guard, who was then 14 years old. Quote, we were young, we were fanatical, we thought that Mao was a really great man, that he alone had the truth, that he was the truth. That's very, uh, very Christian way of talking about uh, a communist leader there. It's, you know, scary. 
I believe everything I believed everything he said, and I believed that there were good reasons for the Cultural Revolution. We thought we were revolutionaries, and because we were revolutionaries who followed Mao's orders, we thought we could solve everything and solve all the problems of society. That's very familiar. That's that's basically what's going on right now. That finishes his quote. Moving on. Atrocities became more and more widespread and were of a more traditional nature than they had been the year before. The following events were witnessed near Lanshao and Gansu. Quote, there must have been about 50 vehicles. Each one had a body strapped across the radiator. Some lorries had more than one tied to them. They were all stretched out diagonally and tied there with rope and wire. The crowd surrounded one man and stabbed him to death with spears and rustic swords until he fell to the ground and lay there bleeding, uh, lay there a bleeding heap of flesh, unquote. In the second half of 1968, the army reasserted control and tightened its grip. The Red Guard, so you remember that the Red Guards and a lot of these other things are just grassroots organizations. These are not the army itself. The army is kind of standing by often and letting these things happen. The Red Guards were disbanded, and that autumn, millions of young people, by 1970, the total was 5.4 million, were sent out into the countryside in the hope that they would remain there. So stop causing trouble because we've gotten enough out of you. We've scared enough people in the existing society, but we do need some structures remaining so that we can continue to go on and advance our, our society in the new communist way. Many stayed for a decade or more. Before Mao's death, between 12 and 20 million people were forcibly ruralized in this fashion, including 1 million people from Shanghai, representing 18% of the city's population. So one in five people in Shanghai were basically forced out into the countryside and not allowed to return to the city. So you have to keep in mind, this is in the 60s. Shanghai was, you know, roughly at this time where a city in the United States would have been in like 1910 or so. Being sent out in the countryside puts those people back to like 18, 1840 uh, in terms of lifestyle. It's, I mean, you're really being sent to live by candlelight, maybe, uh, to live kind of a dirty, brutish life. And it's fine if people want to move out and try things like that. It's not okay when the government just says, here, you are going to live this kind of life and they confine you to that. Three million cadres who had been removed from their posts were sent, often for several years, to the seven May schools, rehabilitation centers that were prisons in all but name. Without any doubt, this was the year of the greatest massacres, as worker parties and soldiers took back various campuses and cities in the southern regions. Wuxiao and Guanxi was, destro uh, was destroyed... Wuxiao in Guanxi was destroyed with heavy, heavy artillery and napalm. Guilin was taken on the 19th of August by 30,000 soldiers and armed peasants after a real campaign in which political and military teams managed to fan the country, the country dwellers' indifference toward the Cultural Revolution into active hostility. For six days, rebels were executed en masse. Six days. In the month after the fighting in Guilin, uh, in the month after the fighting in Guilin had ended, the terror spread throughout the countryside, this time directed against the blacks, the counter-revolutionaries, not... This is not black people. These are all Chinese people of one sort or another. Although I do, I do want to mention earlier in the episode, I did quote something about the racialization of these things. A lot of people don't know China is an extremely racist nation. It, Han Chinese is considered to be good if you're uh, a different type of Chinese than Han, then you are a lesser person. You are actually a lesser person, and they will refer to you uh, in lesser terms. If you're not Chinese at all, then you're basically just a dupe or a sucker, uh, and you're nothing. So a lot of people don't know that, but the, the, 
that comes from a number of different things. We could go into that. It's not exclusively a communist creation. Some of that comes from previous um, previous manifestations of how China interacted with the world and how, uh, to some degree, how the, the opium wars went with the British. We don't have to get into that. That's not what's going on here. But anyway, here we go. Uh, let's see. For six days, rebels were executed in mass. In the month after the fighting in Guilin had ended, the terror spread throughout the countryside, this time directed against the blacks and the Kuomintang. The Kuomintang was the alternative political structure. So before the communists took power, the KMT, the Kuomintang, uh, was the organization that had the largest political authority in China. And it was not a, uh, it was not a dynasty, but it was, it was not a democracy either. It was more of like a, a sort of a nationalist uh, authoritarian military structure, but it was not authoritarian in the communist sense. It was authoritarian in the, you know, kind of rule from the top and uh, it, just a different structure. It's it's they were nowhere near as bad as the uh, the um, the communists. And actually, the the KMT I think is still a party, uh, a major political party in Taiwan. I and they're much more democratic than they used to be uh, back before the Chinese culture, uh, back before the Chinese communist revolution, uh, let alone the cultural revolution. Uh, but the, the Kuomintang who were eternal scapegoats, it was so thorough that at the end, some regions could boast that they were quote, entirely free of any member of the five black categories, unquote. It was then that the future chairman of the communist party, Hua Guofeng, who was in charge of security for his province, gained the title, quote, the butcher of Hunan. Unquote. The southern part of the country suffered the most. There were perhaps 100,000 deaths in Guangxi, 40,000 in Guangdong, and 30,000 in Yunnan. The Red Guards were extremely cruel, but the worst atrocities were carried out by their executioners. The soldier. Okay, so you notice this is another instance of the revolution churning. People who are the uh, the uh, repressors become. Uh, execute like they become the targets for the next uh, purge. The soldiers and militias carrying out the party's orders. Former Red Guard Hua Linshan recalls the reprisals in Guilin. As soon as day broke, the soldiers started searching the houses and arresting people. At the same time, they shouted instructions through megaphones. They had drawn up a, a list of ten crimes, including the seizure of prison, raids on a bank, attacks on any military installation, forcible entry into any facility of the security services, raids on trains, and participation in the armed struggle. Anyone who was suspected of any of these crimes was arrested and suffered the justice of the dictatorship of the proletariat. I did a quick calculation and realized that I was guilty of at least six of these crimes, but I had done all of them for the good of the revolution. I had not obtained any personal advantage or profit from them. If I had not wanted to take part in the revolution, I would not have carried out any of those criminal acts. Suddenly, I was asked—I was being asked to be responsible for them. It seemed quite unfair, and naturally, I was very afraid. So, to me, that's like, I mean, okay, screw you. Like, you were, you were being like a really evil person, and now that the revolution has decided that you know, it's done with that phase. It doesn't need you anymore. Now you just become a target and you get uh, all of your crimes pinned on you. Yeah, you're upset about that, but screw you. Uh, this is just, this is the game. This is the can of worms that you open. This is the game you decided to play. What's the old saying? Uh, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Uh, okay, moving on with this quote. I learned later that the soldiers had killed a number of our wounded heroes who were laying in the hospital and they had cut the supplies of blood and oxygen to those who were undergoing transfusions, killing more of these sorts of people. Those who could still walk had all their medication taken away and they were taken to temporary prisons. One wounded man 
who managed one wounded man and managed to slip away and the soldiers cordoned off the area. They searched all the rooms over again. Anyone whose fate, whose name was not written on the local lists was arrested. And that was my fate too. When I was in prison in school, number seven in Guilin, I met up with an old classmate from the time when I was studying to be a mechanic. He told me that one of the combat heroes from our school had been killed by the soldiers. He had become a hero by holding out on a hilltop against an enemy assault for three days and three nights. The rebel general in recognition of his courage had given him the nickname Quote, unique and courageous hero, unquote. The soldiers who took over the school and arrested so many people had asked him to come out from the crowd. They tied him up in a sack and hung him from a tree from uh, hung him from a tree in front of all the students so that he truly resembled a quote gallbladder. Uh, in Chinese the term makes the notion of uniqueness and courageous hero it's very similar to gallbladder. Then they beat him to death in the sack with their rifle butts. There were many other stories, as just as horrible as the that one going around in, in the prison, but I tried not to listen to them. Executions had gone on for two days all over town, and they had become the major topic of conversation. The killings started to seem almost normal. The people who were carrying them out did not seem much bothered by them, and the people who talked about them had become cold and unfeeling. I listened to these stories as though they were from as though they were about some other world. The worst thing in prison was always when one of the prisoners agreed to cooperate with the authorities and came around to try to single out his previous companions. The guard would suddenly give us an order like, lift your horrible dog heads, and a few masked individuals would then enter the room and stare at us for a long time. If they saw someone they knew, the soldiers would point a gun at him and order him to leave with them immediately. Often they were executed immediately. Unquote. Thus, in 1968, the state reasserted itself with all its former per perquisites. It again assumed a monopoly on institutional violence and did not hesitate to use it. An increased number of public executions marked a return to the police tactics used before the Cultural Revolution. In Shanghai, for, former party worker Wang Wofen, I'm sorry, Wang Hongwen, a protege of Jiang Qing and soon to be vice chairman of the party, proclaimed a, quote, victory over anarchy, unquote. On the 27th of April, several rebel leaders were condemned to death and immediately killed in front of a vast crowd. Zhang Chengqiao, another member of the Gang of Four, said in July, quote, If a few people are wrongly accused, it does not really matter, but it would be disastrous to let any of the guilty escape, unquote. So this is an exact reversal of the philosophy that we pretend or at least try to implement here in the, in the United States and in the West, which is that people who are not guilty... Uh, should be let free, meaning we have a high standard of evidence. And even that's the case, even if it means that we can't meet the standard of evidence for people who are guilty. So it's better that 10 guilty men go free than one innocent man be put into prison. This is an exact reversal of that. China entered a dark era of non-existent plots and conspiracy theories, during which arrests were carried out on a massive scale and society returned to dumb silence. Only the death of Lin Biao in 1971 attenuated the worst period of terror that China had seen since the 1950s. And skipping ahead just a little bit, we have another uh, session. You might remember there was Nun, uh, Nin Cheng, uh, who was somebody who played like her class card a lot, so she was like from a... Uh, a laborer family and because it's communism then the laborers are the important people and therefore she would play the class card and people would be able to uh uh like people would have to back down because they, they couldn't say anything about her because because she held a uh she was like higher on the victim totem pole so like she, her victimhood was worse and therefore she's morally better and therefore you have to listen to whatever she says and you can't say anything bad about her but she provided this uh account right here about uh, theatricalized terror. So, like, this is the idea of, like, struggle sessions. 
The audience in the room was shouting slogans and waving little red books. After long live our great leader, Chairman Mao, came good health to our uh, vice good health to our vice supreme commander, Lin. Always good health. This seemed to me not only a reflection of the elevated position of Lin Biao in the Ninth Party Congress, but also testimony to the fact that those who organized this meeting were his intimates, anxious to promote Lin Biao's personality cult. Two legs came into my field of vision. So she's the one who's being uh, who's being subjected to the struggle session here. Two legs came into my limited field of vision. A, man, a man's voice spoke in front of me. He introduced me to the audience by giving an account of my family background and personal life. So this is actually in a theater. So like this is like a lot of people. I had noticed already that each time my life story was being recounted by the revolutionaries, I'd become richer and my way of life had become more decadent and luxurious. So that by this time, she has been subjected to uh, accusations of becoming corrupt, of, yeah, you might have started from lowly origins, but you became a counter-revolutionary and therefore we have to like literally destroy you. And she's actually tied up here, I believe. Uh, now the farce reached fantastic proportions since oh and, and as they've gone around doing this thing like every time that they subject her to these struggle sessions like the list of her crimes grows more and more and more even though there's like no like she hasn't had any time to engage in more crimes she's been a captive all this time uh, now the farce reached fantastic proportions. Since I had promised not to answer back but remain mute, I was much more relaxed than the previous struggle meeting in 1966. However, the audience jumped up from their seats when the speaker told them that I was a spy for the imperialists. They expressed their anger and indignation by crowding around me to shout abuse. To be so maligned was intolerable. Instinctively, I raised my, hands, I raised my head to respond. The woman suddenly jerked up my handcuffed hands. Such sharp pain tore at my shoulder joints that I had to bend my body forward with my head down to ease the agony. They kept me in this position during the rest of the man's denunciation of me. Only when the people were again shouting slogans did they allow my arms to drop back. I was to learn later that I had been subjected to the so-called jet position invented by the revolutionaries to torment their more recalcitrant victims and to force them to bow their heads in servile submission. The people in the audience soon worked themselves into a state of hysteria. Their shouts drowned out the, the voice of the speaker. Someone pushed me hard from behind. I stumbled and knocked over the microphone. One, one of the women tried to pick it up and tripped over the wires and fell, dragging me with her. I fell in an awkward position. My face was pressed against the floor. Many others fell on top of us in the confusion. Everybody seemed to be yelling. There was pandemonium. Several minutes passed. Finally, I was pulled up again. Utterly exhausted, I longed for the meeting to end, but the speeches continued. It seemed every, everyone sitting around the table on the platform wanted to make a contribution. They had ceased to denounce me. Instead, they were competing with each other to sing the praises of Lin Biao the most, in the most extravagant flattery the rich Chinese language could provide. Their efforts to register their devotion to Lin Biao could be explained, I thought, only by the probable presence of Lin Biao's loyal lieutenants listening in the adjacent room. Suddenly, the door behind me opened. A man's voice shouted, Zhula! This meant that someone had departed. The two simple words produced an effect that was electrical. The speaker stopped in mid-sentence. Since the important person or persons listening in the adjoining room had gone, there, were, there was no more need to go on with the performance. Some of the audience was already on their feet, while others were collecting their bags and jackets. Hastily, the speaker led them to shout, to shout slogans. He was largely ignored. Only a few responded while walking out of the room. It seemed the people were no longer angry, angry with me. Though they did not smile, the glances directed at me were indifferent. I was just one of many victims whose, whose struggle meetings they had been present for. Uh, yeah. They had done what was required of them. Now it was over. Once when a man brushed against me, someone behind me even reached out to steady me. 
The room cleared in a moment. I could hear members of the departing audience chatting as they left the building. Getting rather chilly, isn't isn't it? Where are you going for supper? Not raining, is it? Etc., etc. They sounded no different from an audience departing after a show at a cinema or a theater. So this is like, this is like reprehensibly cold. Like this is just the fact that people can be communally brought to do things like this, uh, to be so cold and indifferent about this stuff, uh, to how you're treating somebody. Um, like it's one thing for somebody to be, you know, considered a traitor to their country. It's another thing for that person to be paraded around and subjected to abuse. Uh, it's like, we don't do that. We don't do the tar and feather thing, or at least we shouldn't. We're getting to doing it again. Uh, we're, we're very near that. All right, so one more paragraph, I swear. I'm almost done. All witnesses concur that in 1969, in the years that followed, China was a violent place ruled by slogans and political campaigns. That sounds like 2020 in the United States. The obvious failure of the Cultural Revolution caused most city dwellers to lose all faith in politics. The young were particularly affected because they had invested so much in the process. Their frequent, frequent refusal to go to the countryside led to the formation of an underclass that lived a semi-clandestine existence. Cynicism, criminality, and selfishness were the norm everywhere. In 1971, the brutal and unexpected elimination of Lin Biao, the man whom Mao himself had named his, his as his successor, opened many people's eyes at last. Mao, quote, the great helmsman, unquote, was not infallible after all. So he had uh, made Lin Biao like his declared successor, but Lin Biao was like trying to take power or was possibly going to take power before Mao even passed away, and therefore Mao had to get rid of him and do something about that. I don't remember exactly what happened, but that's basically what's going on here. The Chinese were tired and fearful, and rightly so. The number of people in the Lao Gai, which is, you could think of that as like the Gulag Archipelago of the Chinese version. It's not strictly the same thing. It's different. Uh, anyway, the number of people in the Lao Gai had grown between 2 million in 1966 and 1976. The darkness, however, however, was about to lift. People still pretended to be faithful to their leader. But underneath, civil society was emerging from its torpor prior to its explosion in the uh, years 1976 to 1979. This was a movement much more fertile than the Cultural Revolution, which will always be best summed up by the slogan with which Mao had rewarded a good student in August of 1966. It is because I am obedient that I revolt, which is an interesting way of phrasing it. It's that doublespeak again. So, war is peace. Uh, uh, security, uh, you know, I forget what all the examples are, but like the basic idea here is that in the Cultural Revolution, uh, people were rising up, average people, had taken the doctrines that were they were being programmed with, taken the cult messages they were being programmed with, and they rose up and they began to attack many people, some of them actual uh, enemies of the revolution, but very few, probably. Uh, in fact, it's, you know, it's very difficult to say... W of the people who were attacked, what percentage were genuine uh, counter-revolutionaries? It's almost guaranteed to be a like single-digit percentage of the people who were attacked, and not just physically, but verbally have their uh, livelihoods uh, uh, ended, uh, have their place within society brought to an end. Um, it's In fact, I would be surprised if it was more than 5%, because by this point in the revolution, 
you know, they've already had enormous amounts of death and repression that have gone on. This, the Cultural Revolution was not the instantiation of violence within the Chinese Communist Revolution. This was simply a new phase of it that uh, particularly attacked uh, social norms and uh, cultural um, uh, cultural heritage, basically. So that's the Cultural Revolution, and I did a lot of commentary there, a lot more commentary on this uh, podcast than the previous one about how this applies to our existing situation in, in the United States right now. Now, I feel we are very fortunate because given the state of our society, like a number of years ago, ago I was very worried that we would end up in a genuine race war in the United States. Uh, and I was not worried about that because I'm a white person and I would be attacked. I was worried about that because this country has a lot going for it. And that means we have a, uh, we have a lot to lose uh, by regressing into these older patterns, these more normal patterns of human interaction. In many ways, Western civilization is a fluke. It's a, it's, it's a very different structure from how uh, like Western civilization is the revolution. The revolution is Western civilization. Almost all these other things are manifestations of the past. They are manifestations of the tribe. They are manifestations of the corrupt uh, regime. They are manifestations of the uh, the the bandit culture. So the the first governments being uh, probably being stationary bandits. The bandit that takes fifty percent of what you have but protects you from other bandits. And so at least you'll have half of what you had before. Uh, and you are theoretically protected from the risk of losing everything at any given moment to a bandit who just wants to take and pillage. Uh, those are much more normal ways of existing. Uh, the, the caste system in India is a much more normal way of existing. Meaning you're born into a group and that group is on a certain social level and you have no hope whatsoever permanently of ever changing that. Uh, even to this day, that is largely true in India. There are something like a hundred untouchable castes, meaning like you're born into this and your job is this because that's your family and that's the sort of people you are and you will never change that. Uh, Western civilization is the instantiation of the individualistic ideal, meaning the individual is sovereign and important, and the family structure is important in transmitting that value down, <clears throat> down from one generation to the next, but it's a revolutionary idea. Uh, I think one of the things I'm going to do on these podcasts is go through uh, just the different inventions, concepts, that are foundational to the West, like invent, not inventions like a machine or something like that, but a, a conceptual structure that are really important both to mankind, but also the West, uh, and the individual, the invention of the individual is one of those things. The invention of individual sovereignty is one of those things. But anyway, I should move on because it's almost an hour and 20 and I know I sound utterly disgusting, and I can't imagine anybody wants to hear any more of this. So I will try to clear out my sinuses and take some vitamin C and uh, hopefully get over this hay fever season. And uh, yeah, anybody who has any comments or suggestions or rants, 
feel free to send me an email at just another bite podcast at gmail.com. Uh, give me a five-star rating review, whatever you feel like doing. If you could help out, tell your friends about this podcast. If you enjoyed it, the world is big, life is messy and the devil's in the details. Be decent out there, everyone. <laughs>